Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is John McWhorter, who teaches linguistics, American studies, and music history at Columbia University. He is a columnist at the New York Times, a contributing editor at The Atlantic, the host of the language podcast, Lexicon Valley, and the author of over 20 books, including Nine Nasty Words, English in the Gutter, Then, Now, and Forever, and Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America, just published in October. I welcome John McWhorter to Savage Minds. Left and right are no longer coherent valences in light of the culture wars no. and beyond. Uh, one example I use constantly is that since lockdown last year, the left has been silent about class issues. It is the right that has stepped up to speak for the poor, which has me constantly looking over my shoulder. I'm watching Tucker Carlson nodding my head when back 2003, 4-ish, I couldn't stand the sight of him because what he said I found very problematic about the invasion in Iraq and Afghanistan and whatnot. To his credit, he's come out and repented for that kind of political support that he lent to those wars. But this is just one of many examples. And so Savage Minds was founded last year because I found myself finding wall after wall. I'll give you an example that involves you. I used to write for Black Agenda Report. I submitted a piece. It dealt with what happened with Adolf Reed being essentially black listed from the DSA. Right. And I right. was sent an email from the editor, Glenn Ford, who has since passed away. And he said, because I quoted you in my piece, and he said, I can't believe that you cited John McWhorter. You have shitty friends. And I wrote him back and I said, well, let's begin with, I don't know John McWhorter to call him my friend, although I'm sure we would be friends if we knew each other. But this is not about friendship. This is a professional relationship I have with you and I don't understand this kind of diatribe. It was very unprofessional. And it really mm -hmm. illuminated me of the kind of battle lines being drawn, even within the publication industry, if we can call it that. So I created Savage Minds as a means of getting away from it because we really need to start speaking about issues. I think we need to step away from party lines and we need to address the issues as you have so beautifully in your book, Woke Racism. I have had it up to my back teeth uh, in terms of the way in which dialogue is impossible today without being called a transphobe, a racist, etc. So getting to your book here, Woke Racism addresses many points that fall across the current woke wars from the discussions of racism to gender identity beginning with examining how this new ideology is like a religion in all but name. And this explains, in your book, you explain why this is so destructive and incoherent, yet why this is so attractive to so many people. Can you begin by discussing what drove you to write this book and some of the points that you had initially hoped to get through? Well, I think the key point is the sort of thing that you're referring to, which is that people like you and me, for example, who always thought of ourselves as, you know, on the quote unquote proper side, even if that sounds a little bit smug, suddenly finding that, you know, we're getting, we're, we're getting witch hunted and berated by people who are essentially calling us moral perverts 
for thinking something or not thinking something. And after a while, you start to wonder, what is wrong with these people? What happened? There has always been a type like that. In my career in academia, I have known that sort of prosecutorial person who comes from the hard radical left and thinks of their views as truth incarnate and is ready to wrestle to the ground anybody who doesn't think so. That was always a type, you know, overrepresented in academia and the media. But about two years ago, in the wake of the pandemic and George Floyd, something happened where that kind of person started running the show. It got to the point where that kind of person could stand up and call you a white supremacist and make you just kneel down. And I think a lot of people are thinking, what is wrong with these people? And what's wrong with the people is that they're not coming from a conventional place. We think, why are they so close to other opinions? Or to, you know, if it's gonna be about me for two seconds, why would anybody who's remotely familiar with my work think of me as somebody who could very easily be designated a shitty friend? You know, as if I've written these screeds or if I have these extremist views, what is so quote unquote <clears throat> shitty about me? And you think, what's wrong with these people? And it's not there's something wrong, but it's that what started out as a socio-political orientation has become a foundation of people's identity. And frankly, something of an obsession. These people, they don't put it this way, but the way you make sense of these people, the way you can tell that they're not crazy, although they are a problem, is that they focused on an idea that battling differentials in power, especially where white people hold the power, should be our central focus in anything that we do of any particular profile. So not when you're sweeping up your house, but if you're doing anything that's supposed to be of societal impact, you are supposed to be battling differentials in power. Now, a hundred years ago, people were battling differentials in power. But with these people, the idea is if you're not doing that, if you're not decentering whiteness, then there's something wrong with you. That is the moral urgency of our times. So for them, they figure they're doing good. And if you're not going to join them, well, it's worth cracking some eggs to make an omelet because you are on the wrong side of history and you need to be shouted out of the room. And that is what you are dealing with. That is what I have dealt with. I now, you know, once you understand where this person comes from, you realize where you have gone wrong in thinking you could break bread with people. For me, it goes back 25 years. And it just needs to be reified. We need to understand where these people are coming from, even if they don't put it that way themselves. I think the religion analogy is useful and frankly, accurate. I really do regard these people as parishioners. And it means that they never frustrate me. They never surprise me. It's a religion. They just don't use the word. And we need to realize that that's the kind of person you cannot reason with them on these issues, such as race issues or issues about any category of person. Reason will not work. You have to learn to either stand them down if they're standing between you and something legitimate that you want, or you have to step around them. You have to understand that there's some people you can't have a discussion with about these things. And that's what woke racism is about. It's not about how black people don't need help, but it's about how a lot of people standing up for us, and white, black, and everything in between and around, are doing something different from what civil rights leaders have traditionally been doing. And we have to understand that even though they call themselves being interested in something called social justice, what they've really joined is what I hate to call a kind of zealotry that is more about showing something to one another than helping real people. And we have to start treating them like that, because if we don't, then real civil rights activism, real change for real people who need help doesn't happen. That's what woke racism is about. Well, it's interesting in all of this not centering whiteness, 
that whiteness ends up being magnified by people like Robin DiAngelo and her ilk, if I might say so. The, the fact is that with all of this talk of whiteness, there's been very little talk that whiteness might just be a fiction, you know, wink, wink. In the same way, and I'm thinking of what you write here in your book, a really beautiful section, I just love this, when you refer to Kwame Anthony Apia, whose work in my father's house, I've, I've loved, I've taught, I've written about. Mm -hmm. And you say this Ghanaian British gay man is to perceive himself primarily, and we are to perceive him primarily as a black man, just like Chris Rock, Samuel Jackson, Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, and George Floyd, despite that he has nothing meaningful in common with any of them. We are to fashion this caricatured, caricatured sense of him mainly because he is a touch more likely than Steven Pinker to have trouble with the cops. That was so eloquent to me. Because what I see constantly happening is this conflation with blackness as, a, as an essential identity with everything but because of the history of African-Americans and the history even of let's say Ghanians is quite different than the, the, the epitome of race that many of these people are referring to. And I have problems with this, even going back to Darwin and the way that his work has been misconstrued, because Darwin poked fun at the idea that humans had races. And he writes this very clearly in his work. Yet somehow we're supposed to believe that he too is part of the problem that the woke revolution must now topple his statue. And I think people are trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater without understanding that history is not tele teleological and that this idea of progress is also a fiction. So that somehow being on the streets, toppling a statue of Robert E. Lee is just, but there is no thought put into the fact that maybe that statue should remain to serve as a historical lesson for people walking by that park or through that park. Can we erase the ills of history by simply erasing all mention to the wrongs? And this is something that has struck me since last summer with the toppling of statues and the way that that tried to infect movements in the UK. And a lot of people ended up in Britain saying, mm -mm, no, this isn't working here because we have a different history. Even the Brits were able to understand that we are not like Chris Rock, Samuel Jackson, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's a religion. And so it makes sense to people to topple the statues. And because this is a kind of thought that is separate from just looking at things the way they are. There's a, there's a, I hate to say a blessedness about it. And this isn't to imply that religion is completely incoherent, but there's a part of religion that often asks that you suspend logic. And that's what's going on here. The very people who are pushing these statues down or urging that they be pulled away aren't aware of how much they look like what the Taliban were doing not too long ago, where the very same people, you know, tisk tisk and thought of these people as primitives for being so concerned with imagery and, you know, what a piece of art might say about the past, et cetera. Primitive if the Taliban do it, but if you do it in American English somewhere in the American South, it's considered 
the most progressive of ideas. And you know, not all statues need to be kept up. I mean, there's a case by case issue, but mm -hmm. the idea that you might leave the statue of Robert E. Lee up and teach children of it as a reminder of something that you don't want to go back to, as much sense as that makes, you're not, you're supposed to pretend that that doesn't belong at the table. And there are all sorts of things where this kind of person presents themselves to us as making the quintessence of sense, the ultimate truth, but they don't, and 99% of us know it, but we pretend that they do because we don't want to be called white supremacist on Twitter. But what it means is that, say with Apia, and it's interesting, I've had the occasion to actually sit down to dinner with him and some other people since I wrote that, and so I know him better now than I did in passing back then. There really is an idea that because he has brown skin, because he has African DNA, that the essence of him, as far as these people are concerned, it's the cops. The quintessence of the black experience is that you might have more trouble with the cops than a white person. And never mind that the data on that is extremely oversimplified. And the notion that to be black is to walk around in particular danger of being killed by a cop is extremely dicey. But let's say that were true. Is it true to such an extent that Apia should think of himself as the same thing as Chris Rock. You know, whatever the extent is to which the cops might look at this, you know, man in late middle age, this black man in late middle age, who is dressed differently, talks differently, moves differently, thinks differently than Chris Rock in every single way. They're gonna be finding him more suspicious than they would Steven Pinker. Maybe there is to some degree. Does that define what his whole identity is supposed to be? And any sensible person knows that it doesn't. It's a vast oversimplification of what humanity is. But we're supposed to pretend that that isn't true. And I just, when I wrote that, I thought about Apia. He gets up with his quint quintessentially wise self and talks about individual identity. Don't let yourself get lumped in. And everybody nods. Everybody says, okay. Partly because when he says it, it's in an accent, which in American sounds foreign. But still, based on our new orthodoxy, he's wrong. We're not supposed to think of him as an individual. We're supposed to think of him as a black man who lives under the same circumstances as all black people with our intersectional selves, laboring under the pressures of white hegemony. Despite the fact that Apia is married to a white man, none of this makes any sense. And yet we're expected to pretend to think so. Woke racism is about coaxing people to stop pretending to think this stuff makes sense because otherwise it's gonna run our entire lives. Well, I'm thinking back to, I don't know if you've seen this film called Hollywood Shuffle by Robert Townsend. I remember it well. Yes. Yeah. I love this film because he takes aim at the way that Black actors are caricatured within Hollywood. So you have Robert Townsend's mm -hmm. character who's trying to get a role in a film and you have Samuel Jackson who plays this guy who's like a pimp and he's always trying mm -hmm. to get his activator. It's, it's hysterical, the film. And it's a huge condemnation of racism in Hollywood. At the same time, the film ends with Robert Townsend being the postman. It's quite beautiful. I love that ending. But you know what I'm struck by is that we've been there before, such as what Robert Townsend did or what Marlon Riggs did with Black is Black Ain't. Mm -hmm. And that film itself was a really great exegesis of American television. Mm -hmm. And what and he points to in the film, I think the consensus of the film is basically that the best film about race in America is all in the family with Archie and calling Meathead and calling the Jeffersons the names that he used. And this mm -hmm. was 
the realistic approach. Now today, we all know all in the family wouldn't have even made it past the pilot. It would have been so canceled. Mm-hmm. So we're at this crossroads of can we represent things as they were or must we pretend like toppling the statutes that things never happened, creating this paradise of a mythic past that never happened. And you discuss this in your book in the sense of in the first chapter, what kind of people you focus upon the people wielding this ideology to spread its influence while giving its adherents the genuine impression that they are forging progress, that reason and morality are theirs alone. And your claim is that society is changing not because of a burgeoning degree of consensus and moral sophistication, but because of fear. Like the gender movement, which peddles in regressive and sexist stereotypes that get away with this simply because they take to the public square to call women, feminists, JK Rowling, transphobes and heretics, This has happened as well, such as what happened with Adolf Reed. And I'm thinking back to his piece about seven years ago, six years ago, where he compares Rachel Dolezal's predicament to that of Bruce Jenner. And he says, one trans good, another bad. People ridiculed Dolezal very quickly. She didn't get much truck with her claim to be black from the general population, but Bruce Jenner does. And there's something quite essentialist about the fact that one is so embraced and the other not at all. Because if you're gonna carry through this identity politics rationale, then we can all identify as anything. I can identify as you, John, and you can be me. We can just switch (laughs) off like Freaky Friday. It's interesting. The um, the Dalazal case was never truly chewed on because it's easy to forget this, but the Dylan Roof killing nine Black people, that happened right after that. And justifiably, we talked more about that than Dalazal, and she never really quite came back in the media. But it was interesting. You have this white woman who decides she wants to be Black, and you can tell that she kind of gets off on pretending to be a victim. She likes that identity. She makes up things that are happening to her. And that was a sign of progress. There was no Mm -hmm. such thing as that until about 15 minutes ago. When you get to the point that you have a Rachel Dolezal, another prominent case was Jessica Krug, um, who claimed, a Jewish American woman, who claimed that her her family's original name was Cruz, but that it had been mistranscribed at Ellis Island or something into crew, you know, something that silly. And she's running around pretending to be uh, an Afro-Latino something academic and gets away with it for 20 years. And then it turns out she's been faking it. Nobody would want to do that if being Black were as difficult today as we're often told. Nobody was doing that in 1935. And yet Hollywood Shuffle is always interesting to me in that I remember it well, and I remember that it also portrayed how hard it was for Black people to be their whole selves in Hollywood at the time. And, you know, Mm -hmm. even in 1987, I remember thinking, because things were changing quickly, even then, I thought, is stereotyping in Hollywood of Black people really this rampant? There was a part of me that felt like Hollywood Shuffle was referring to Hollywood in, say, 1974 rather than 1987. No sin. It was a great movie anyway. But we think about how far we've come since then, where in that movie, 
it's a joke, but black people are claiming that you have to play a victim, that you're always being shot by the cops and that you're the first person who gets killed in any disaster movie, et cetera. That isn't true now. We've come a long, long way since 1987. And yet, if you take the temperature of people who cover black Hollywood, not to mention, unfortunately, a lot of people who work in it, you would think that nothing had changed. The stereotyping is the same. You can't hear your voice. There aren't enough people to green light this. There aren't enough people to green light that. Whereas the difference between black people in Hollywood now and black people in Hollywood in 1987 is like two different planets. Anybody can see it. The fact that you can even pretend to have a conversation where things haven't changed all that much, again, is anti-empirical. It's, it, it's a way of not making sense in favor of always being able to point out some kind of racism. And we've got to stop thinking that way. The idea that it's racially progressive to pretend that no real progress ever happens. No, counter it, things that don't make sense have never gotten people ahead. You have to engage with reality, even when Lord forbid the reality is positive. The idea that you resist acknowledging that anything good has happened is not how any people have ever gotten ahead in the history of the species. And that's one of the things I try to get across. Well, you also mentioned your book, you explain why so many black people are attracted to a religion that treats black Americans as simpletons, while also being quite harmful to these very people, despite being billed as anti-racist. What kind of people do these things? The kind of people who do these things, who are white, are people who have adopted a religion that says showing that we know that racism still exists is how we show we're good people. The kind of black person who enjoys being treated that way, who thinks of those white people as doing the right thing, is a black person who has fallen for the idea, because it would be so easy for any human being to fall for this, that what makes you most interesting is your victimization at the hands of other people, because that automatically makes you kind of a hero. It means that if all of you are suffering this, then you get an automatic sense of community with your fellow black people. It gives you a sense of place. It gives you a sense of purpose. It gives you a sense of absolution because whatever's mm -hmm. wrong with you, well, you also are somebody who's fighting this racism every day. That kind of martyr, that kind of professional victim is a human type, but that human type is a very available way of being to black people in our moment. We're encouraged to cherish a sense of ourselves as victims. And I think anybody can reach into how that can feel kind of good sometimes. Probably all of us fall into it to an extent when a relationship goes badly, when we were in fifth grade and we had a stint as the class tattletale, it's human. But Black America ends up ODing on that and therefore becoming part of these people I call the elect. And it's just not constructive. Well, I was going to ask you about that next because you discuss the elect throughout your book. Can you discuss what you mean when you say the elect? And is this at all related to what Adolf Reed terms as this managerial class that has professionalized this kind of oppression politics and made a living off of it? Yeah, um, Adolf Reed and I are talking about slightly different things in that I, I sense that he thinks of it as partly deliberate and partly something that is done by people who draw their salary from certain institutions such as universities and the media. I don't think it's that deliberate. I think it's based on a human sentiment that tends to come with higher education and thus it becomes common in academia naturally and also media. But yeah, it's the kind of person who feels that their radical leftist politics are so close to truth, are so unquestionable that it's permissible to be mean to people. That's the elect. So the elect is not just 
who we were calling woke in 2015. The elect is people who think that if you don't believe a certain compact of ideas, many of them counterintuitive and many of them just wrong, then you deserve to be fired. You deserve to be called a white supremacist on social media. You deserve to be called a shitty friend, that sort of thing, that exclusionary idea. That's the elect. These are people who are high prosecutors and executioners and think that it's justifiable in the name of a higher goal. That's the elect. And those people now have disproportionate power over our institutions of academia, of the arts, of increasingly our judicial institutions. In other words, how we think and how we express ourselves and how we dream. And there's some people who insist that what's more important is what happened on the Capitol steps on January 6th and the fact that there were Republicans who were trying to keep Black people from voting. Both of those things are terrible. I'm more interested in the second. But the idea that what I'm talking about in woke racism is somehow trivial compared to the other two, no. Anybody who truly believes that is somebody who probably kind of likes what the elect do. All power to them, but I don't, and I think most of us don't. And it's time that we started being more vocal about it. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Well, you speak in your book about the clergy of the elect, and you refer to Ta-Nehisi Coates' essay, The Case for Reparations. Can you discuss how his work has fit into this formation of the clergy? Because I see him as one of the key figures in this today. He might as well have a mitre on his head, yeah. And it's not something that he chose. But yeah, the reparations article is interesting in many ways, briefly to just situate it. Tanasi Coates wrote a very artful article about reparations in, I believe, 2014. It was received as if it was the latest unsafe at any speed by Ralph Nader or Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. You know, just it was with hosannas. Okay. But the question was, is a call for reparations really such a new thing? Because not that long ago, just back in 1999-2000, Randall Robinson wrote a whole book about reparations called The Debt. It really got around. Every Black reading group, he was all over the media. I don't know what's happened to him since, but big deal. Huge conversation about reparations that was only interrupted by 9-11. So now, you know, 13, 14 years is a while, but it's not an eternity. And yet Coates writes that article and suddenly it's as if reparations hasn't been discussed since 1968. That was odd in itself. And this has nothing to do with knocking Coates. I'm sure he was even a little bit surprised. Why is this being received as such a novelty? And then Coates also really didn't have any real prescriptions as to what exactly we were gonna do, what kind of reparations, that didn't seem to interest him, but that didn't matter either. And it was that article, it was then that I realized that something was afoot. I thought, this is a good article, but the way this is being received is religious. I realized mm -hmm. it's preaching. Everybody knows what he's saying for the most part. I think it did increase a general awareness of what redlining was, but that's not why the article was received the way it was. It was scripture. I thought the only way to make sense of the way this particular article is being received is as if a good preacher did a really good sermon one Sunday. That was when I wrote my first article saying that there's a religion afoot. And so Coates can basically say anything that he wants 
and be worshiped for it. And no, I'm not jealous. I am very happy with the pulpit that I have, and I have a great many other things to do. Nevertheless, he is you know, worshiped. He's not just life, he's worshiped. And I thought it is worship. It's because people like hearing him say things they already know. It's church. That was my first tip up. And I've realized that with a lot of other things people write and say these days, it's the same thing. I'm not saying they're unoriginal. You have to say some things over again. But the response to his particular article was weird. I'm not saying mm -hmm. that it bothered me, but it was just, why that? And that's when I realized something different is happening than was going on before. You mentioned original sin in your book, something I spoke about in an article I wrote several years back, because the root of this kind of essentialism is twofold. One, that now you have this noble savage being rehashed, <laughs> and then you have white people are guilty for existing, okay? They have privilege, but they're guilty because of that privilege. Why are we revisiting issues that took place 200 years ago? I mean, primitivism didn't have a very good end point to it. In fact, it became part of the raison d'etre of colonial projects. This idea that we can teach them how to worship. We can teach them how to wash. You know, it's, it's almost ironic when you start to look historically, I've done a lot of work in the Arab world, and we know that just the Quran itself gave very good hygiene to those practitioners of that religion. Mm -hmm. So what was it about this double matrix of having the illumination because of being the noble savage to impart upon those with white privilege who are sinful? How did we come to this 180 in racism of a sort? And I know people will think, oh, you're talking about reverse racism. Well, remember that discussion in New York in the 1980s, when people in the 90s, when pe people would underscore that's reverse racism. And people would say, no, you cannot, black people cannot possibly be racist. Well, <laughs> you know, these are again, more essentialisms that are made from the safety harbors of sea to shining sea of people, I think Americans have the lowest percentage of passport possession in the world, racism does exist and it exists in very strange ways. One example, Morocco. You have three primary Berber tribes and most of them tend to be lighter skinned, fair eyes and, and hair than the Arabs. This is a generalization. And there is racism directed at them. It is not uncommon. The first time I lived with a family in Morocco, in Rabat, they had a 14-year-old servant girl who was a Berber, a Berber girl, and she was basically a house slave. <laughs> so mm -hmm. racism isn't necessarily a predicament based uniquely on the oppressed being darker or having certain attributes that once upon a time were universal within a Western specter of racism, if you follow. Yeah, I think um, something I've particularly experienced during the media tour for this book is that there is a, a meme that overrides any 
logical sense that you're talking about, about you know, how efficacious it can be to train groups in these particular ways. There's an idea that white people need to understand their complicitness before any political change of any significance can happen. And mm-hmm. so we have to train white people to have better, you know, say ethical hygiene in this way, because otherwise no black people who are poor are gonna get any less poor. That's a very fragile proposition. I ask why, how do you know? Where do you get that idea? It's under considered. There's a nice idea that white people get so guilty that they bow down and change things. But what the actual mechanism in society would be is quite difficult to conceive of, but we're not supposed to be thinking that concretely. And I insist that we start doing so. And what you say about Morocco is interesting because the whole discussion here about the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow tends to imply that something uniquely hideous happened in the United States, as opposed to the fact that slavery, frankly, was more oppressive in a great many places in the Caribbean, has been a norm throughout history, and discrimination is a human universal. I really do think that Americans would benefit from more travel. You talk about the idea that everybody after high school would do some kind of two-year service, and I would say abroad. I think a lot of people who speak for Black people and a lot of Black people themselves would benefit from what many Black people get who join the military, which is just to go to other parts of the world and look at what real unbridled racism and discrimination can be like against all people, roughly, except Mm -hmm. white people, that you don't have to have chocolate brown skin. Then come back to the United States and talk about how deeply racist you really think the society is. Go roughly almost anywhere else and then say that an American college campus is a racist place. Say it out loud. Look look yourself in the mirror and say it. But that doesn't happen because we Mm -hmm. Americans are somewhat parochial, as you said. You know, we don't translate books. You know, we have the lowest number of passports. For us, the United States is the center of the earth. English is God's language. We can't help that. That's something that any American is born into, call us complicit. But it does mean that we have a rather parochial sense of these things that would change if more people got to travel more. Absolutely. I remember my first time in Honduras, there was an American with me who was shocked that there were Chinese Hondurans. And I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, go to Mexico mm-hmm. City. There are huge communities of Hasidic Jews. There are yeah. all the greatest intellectuals of Mexico have names like Poniatowska, Krautska. You have names that are definitely not Spanish or other indigenous names. So, yeah. and it's also interesting because I, you teach music history at Columbia. And when you hear people talking about jazz, my favorite is when people talk about Miles Davis and he really gets the oppression of his life. And I'm thinking, I had this discussion with someone. I said, he came from a middle-class background. His father was a dentist. And people <laughs> don't really want to hear that. No. They want to hear the chain gang references. They want to hear the caricatures of what roots the 1970s roots gave them and I think that I'm American I'm a naturalized American I was raised in Canada until the age of 10 and then we moved to New Orleans and I remember the first thing I saw was graffiti on the walls and I asked my mother what does motherfucker mean because I had no idea (laughs) of these words and there were racist terms also graffitied. And New Orleans is an interesting city because it's one of those towns, at least in the 70s, 
that was primarily African-American and that the notion of race was much more interesting than it is in the Northeast. People mm -hmm. knew that you, it wasn't uncommon to see black kids in my school that had very light hair. It was not uncommon to see, and people would use the word then mulatto or whatever, or mixed mm -hmm. race and whatever. But this raises a larger question going back to in my father's house or even to, well, I'm thinking more broadly in terms of how African-Americans have been made to think of themselves as purely black. Somehow this one drop rule has permeated self-perception such that we must obliterate any mention of quote unquote whiteness. And that too, I would bounce back as whiteness is itself a fiction. Do you remember the film Russian Ark? That I don't remember. It's a beautiful film, oh, I cannot recommend it enough, but it really is about this deconstruction of Russian identity because 150 years ago, Russia, Poland, these were not consider, considered at all white countries. These were very exotic countries. They were a step away from being the T.E. Lawrence of the Middle East space. So the way in which people understand even Europe where does Europe begin and end? I would ask my students at NYU. What does that mean, the West? Where do you put the, is it the Bosphorus? Do we carve Turkey in half? Where do you put that line on what is Europe and what is Asia? And when you ask undergraduates this, it's quite interesting because they're not as polluted with this kind of ideology, at least not in the 90s they weren't. And you can have productive discussions about what that kind of line drawing meant as a discursive practice by historians. The same thing with Huntington's work or Edward Said's work speaking back to Huntington. And my thinking is that universities have become these wells of ideological formation, such that we are where we are today because of a lot of the ideological formation that was happening in the 80s and 90s, where there was always an oppressor and an oppressed. There was nothing remotely in between. So when you, you talk in your book about the way in which this ideology is like a religion or is religious, there's a problem with how people are inculcated into the religion by fiat of lessons at a grammar school or a university or by cultural interpolation, such that people growing up when I was in New Orleans in the 70s, they knew what words to use to hit back at someone. They might have been racist words. They might have been words about the fat kid on the schoolyard who couldn't dribble a ball. But people lash out for all sorts of reasons. And race is one of those identities. It's not the only identity. As we saw last year, the famous incident in Central Park. Um, and I find that incident quite interesting because I read a review of the incident. I believe it was the New York Post where the columnist said that the real Karen was the person who made a big stink about what was happening because he went and did some research about the squabbles in Central Park between the bird watchers and the dog walkers. And his thesis basically was that Chris Cooper was the real Karen because he tried to one up this woman on a squabble that he had been himself steeped in for quite a long time. And 
it made me think a lot about this, the way in which this is all about point scoring. So all over Twitter after that event happened, see, black men are really in danger. And I saw Chris Cooper. He seemed to me to be a very well-educated man. I thought he was a well-educated gay man. I could be wrong. And I thought, well, if he's a well-educated black gay man in Central Park, then he's probably making a lot more money than Amy Cooper. <laughs> you know, that was my first thought. Mm -hmm. And in all of the BLM exercises over the past years, I keep going back to the fact that class is being consciously obfuscated. We're focusing on the wrong issue. Class should have been the issue that is addressed in terms of Trayvon Martin, in terms of George Floyd, in terms of all of it, and not just black men, by the way. What is happening in America today that class isn't even a second-hand consideration? It's just not existent. No, we don't talk about it. It's interesting. I always think the British, we keep talking about TV and movies, the British sitcom Keeping Up Appearances about Hyacinth Bouquet, that is one that could never translate into American. There's this tradition, or it used to be this tradition, still is, of translating British sitcoms into American, including All in the Family. Keeping Up Appearances, they've never tried it because that show is so explicitly about class in Britain. And in American, there would be no way to mirror the same thing because we pretend class doesn't exist. And a lot of what you're talking about, the arbitrariness of racial concepts and the fact that we today are so happy discussing race in exactly the way that a Southern segregationist would have wanted us to 125 years ago. A lot of that really does come down to something so mundane and it's the police. Anything that you have said, the response from a certain type, and it's not only the elect, is what about the way the cops would treat that person? So you have a person who, you know, one parent is white, one parent is black, and they are a pundit, and they make an awful lot of noise about their blackness, and they clearly think of themselves as black first and American and everything else second. And you're thinking, you're two things. Why are you pretending you're only one? And the answer to that is how the cops would treat me or how the cops would, if it's a woman, how the cops treat my brother or how the cops would treat my boyfriend, et cetera. And it only comes down to that when even there, the statistical truth is it's about class. The cops kill many more white men than black men. And what all the people who get killed in common have for the most part in common is that they are people of working or lower class. There's an issue with the cops and murder. And a lot of it is aimed at people who don't have very much money, don't have very many resources. That includes black people, that includes white people. But you're not supposed to talk about that. Instead, you're supposed to talk about the cops as the fulcrum of identity of black people. And therefore all talk of the mulatto, all talk of how, especially in New Orleans, you have people who are, who call themselves black, who have quote unquote, white hair and light skin. I've had some people and not in New Orleans, who tell me that they're black, where there's nothing about them physically that indicates it remotely at all. And I think to myself, in a different world, this person wouldn't really be labeling themselves as any race in particular, they just call themselves American. But for whatever reasons, they label themselves as black. And even if one of their parents is identifiably brown, if they look the way they do, why is it that we call them passing if they decide that they're not going to identify as black when they have none of the physical characteristics again none of this makes any logical sense and one of the things that we're really stuck in is the idea that black is the cops and that's why i am very committed to doing everything 
that will lessen encounters between particularly black men and the police. The Cooper incident, Amy Cooper and Christian Cooper was very interesting because the truth is whenever you see something that looks that starkly hideous, I mean, that woman seemed like somebody out of 1915. You can be mm -hmm. almost sure that we're not getting the whole story. And yes, there was a whole context in terms of what that guy was asking her. Also, if you look at the transcript of what she actually said, it wasn't ideal, but it wasn't specifically that she just jumped on the phone and said, an African-American man is chasing me. That's not what mm -hmm. happened. It was, mm -hmm. it, was, it was weirder than that. But we're encouraged to think of there being a certain narrative. And you know, to his credit, even Christian Cooper said, I really like this, that she didn't deserve to be tortured any more than she already had. He didn't think she deserved to lose her job. You know, she was strung up in the media. He figured that was enough. But a lot of other people did not think so. And that woman's life will never be the same. That is the climate that we're in. And it's time that those of us who are you know, left of center, but have not fallen into being part of a religion for one reason or another, need to speak up and take things back to the middle. That's what I think. No, I agree. And the interesting thing about the Cooper incident or the Cooper's incident is that it was his sister that got this rolling on social media because she's some big wig in Hollywood. And I thought a lot about the class even in that and the way in which social media becomes a downward spiraling snowball with no control at a certain point. And I did notice that he made that statement about her. It's just interesting to me that we are on this trajectory to take up almost like Shirley Jackson's lottery and stone someone to death and then afterwards say, okay, done, they've suffered enough. And I think we need to roll back the discussion and start to get at, wait, she was saying something to him and his response was, well, I'm gonna do what I wanna do, which she took as a menace. She took as threatening, agree with her or not, because what she did, as you said, I, I found that not ideal and troubling. At the same time, you have one person perceiving, a perhaps perceiving a sexual assault menace or a threat to do that. And the other one trying to have his way to look at the birds that he came to look at and that her dog not be off the leash. It was an interesting power play. Even after reading the transcript, I had more questions than answers. But it's yeah. really the media pylon that got me concerned about what the discussion is going to constantly in the States. Race is our elephant in the room, and yet it is that molehill that we make into a mountain that often, not always, of course. And I think that we lack, as a culture, the ability to see the difference between racism and not racism. Everything cannot be racist, because if everything is racist, therefore nothing is racist. So how did we get here, John, that now we are in a situation where people are using their victimhood status to be right? I can beat anyone online if I just say, well, I am that group you've just referred to, so you don't have a right to speak about it, you cishet white male oppressor. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, social media does this. Social media makes us into a village and social media gives loud people a platform and social media whips people up. 
And so, you know, none of us are going to do without Twitter or Facebook or the rest of them at this point. But everything changes when Twitter and Facebook become default in the year 2009. And it's been snowballing ever since then. And it's a problem because, yeah, there have always been certain Black people who used this theatrical victimhood status as a kind of a battering ram. That's always been, that's been a type for 50 years. But now that kind of person has an awful lot of people behind them because there are an awful lot of white people who pretend to agree with everything that person says because they've learned that that's how you show that you're a good person. And they have better things to do than to think about any of these things too hard. And all of that is understandable. I can imagine if I were white, I would be very devoted to showing that I believe the right things about black people and would even bend over backwards <clears throat> and allow some cognitive dissonance out of a fear of being called a dirty name and figuring that if I dot every I and cross every T, it will take an obsessiveness that I don't have time for because I have other things to do. I get it. But the whole climate there ends up meaning that an ideology is out there that I think, frankly, hurts Black people. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. If a whole lot of white people decide that it's not insulting to say that Black kids shouldn't have to take standardized tests, if a whole lot of white people pretend that that isn't one step from saying Black kids aren't as smart as others, then we need to blow the whistle on that mm -hmm. because a lot of people call that anti-racism. I call it racism under a different guise. If a whole lot of white people and Black people alongside say there needs to be less policing in dangerous Black neighborhoods because the police make mistakes, and the people in the neighborhoods themselves say, no, actually, we would like more policing, and that's mm -hmm. considered a legitimate argument where people are going to look over each other's shoulders and pretend that there's nobody who's right and there's nobody who's wrong. Well, mm -hmm. a lot of people call defund the police anti-racism. I call it racism under a different name. And we need to just start saying it loud and clear. In my book, I say, be Spartacus. It's time for people to stand up and say that this message, even though if you disagree with it, you're going to get called a white supremacist on Twitter, is anti-Black itself, and I won't stand for it. And I hope as many people can do that as possible so that we can return to what I think of as the better days of 2019. I never thought of 2019 as paradise, but something went way off in about May of 2020, and it's just got to go. To what degree do you think lockdown had an effect on what happened in Huge. 2020? Huge. I think that the social history has yet to be written, but it was a time, and you hate to say this because you know we're all still bruised. And I'm not trying to say that people did this deliberately, but you have to remember what May 2020 was like. And I think we all can. It was then that we'd been in for two months and it was then that it started to become clear that it wasn't gonna change anytime soon. And mm -hmm. it was spring and you're looking out the window. All of those protests were a way of one, having an excuse to go outside to an outlet. That's too dismissive and I don't mean it that way. Let me say the protests were partly a response to, it was a way of going outside it was a way of joining other people in doing something. And there was a certain letting off of steam that could be hard to do if you were stuck inside your apartment or even your house for months at a time. I firmly believe as hideous as the murder of George Floyd was, we've seen such things. And I think that that alone would not have sparked the kind of protest that we saw if people weren't desperate to get outside and breathe other people's air to an extent. And I understand that, but it means that social history, there's always that element of chance. What would have happened if William McKinley had not been shot? That sort of thing, the butterfly flaps and there's a storm in Brazil. 
In this case, if there hadn't been a pandemic, I don't think there would have been the new racial reckoning of 2020. And I think many people would say, well, good. You know, it means that something good came out of the pandemic. But an awful lot bad has come out of it too. And it's time to clip the wings of this thing. But yeah, the pandemic was a lot of it. Everybody wanted to get out. Everybody wanted to join something. That yeah. had to be part of why that happened. Because at the time, it was mystifying. George Floyd was a terrible thing. But to me, metaphorically, it was looking out the window or literally in my neighborhood and thinking, it's just like with ta Coates and the reparations. Why this? Why this response to that thing right now? The pandemic mm -hmm. had to have been part of it. It also removed people from their physical possessions of a home, meaning that, and going back to the idea, the discussion on redlining, who owns homes in the United States and who does not? Who was locked down in a tiny flat? Who was not? And when you have the Robin D'Angelo's of the world, I don't know for sure, but I can pretty much bet she doesn't live in a tiny flat. It's yeah. really easy for white managerial class professionals to get out on the streets and say, I'm just like you, when they're not. Yeah, it's an equalizer. If you're out there with your fist up in the air wearing a t-shirt, then you, you, know, you get away from demonstrating what you really are, which you might feel guilty about. And it's not that nothing good has come out of the racial reckoning. It's not completely a bad thing for people to think more about race than they had before. But we're tending to pretend that before May of 2020, America was where it was in about 1969. And that's not true. I have told many hosts of these shows over the past couple months, I think white people were feeling quite guilty enough. I'm not sure why we decided that they needed to feel guilty-er. And I think that we needed to just work constructively with what guilt there was. We were being distracted even before 2020 from that kind of constructive work by this idea that striking poses is somehow a necessary beginning when really what you need to do is just go out and begin. Absolutely. And I have had a discussion with my father over the years. He is no longer on this earth, but he comes from Gujarat and he moved to Alabama in 1959 as a dental student. And he saw the entire civil rights protest, took part in it. And he'd tell me as I was growing up how lucky he was that the British colonization of India gave him certain types of access to education, the ability to speak English. And I was horrified. My woke inner child was horrified. And I thought, how can you, and I was much younger, how can you say that, but the British is it? And over the years, our discussions would develop and I became very understanding of what he was saying as I grew older, because history is not black or white in a discursive sense, I mean. It is much more about the nuances and the contradictions. And I think that our current era and this generation of 20 and 30 somethings are reacting to not at all racism, John. I, I dare to say that I think this is a lot about economic disempowerment, anger at the institutions that existed for their parents that no longer are there, jobs, go ahead and get a second master's, go ahead and get a third, get a PhD. There are no jobs for these people. And I wonder to what degree a lot of this is displaced anger using George Floyd and other people the protest subject at hand as the reasoning for the venting of the anger. And I'm thinking from my anthropological perspective of having gone to 
possession ceremonies in Morocco where people would act out being possessed by Aisha Kandisha and they'd throw the glass across the room and the Sufi musicians would be singing and drumming. But you could see that they were acting, these people in trance weren't really in trance at times. And I wonder to what degree we're seeing a fake theater of outrage when this is not at all about race, but it's very much about socioeconomic inequality. Yeah, there is a theatrical aspect to a lot of this. And certainly there's a general frustration with the way society operates and what prospects are offered for you that can be released by a sense that this society is wrong for one thing in being a you know, racist cesspool, et cetera. But yeah, the, the theatrical aspect of a lot of this is a lot of what makes me question and a lot of what makes me speak out because there's an extent to which people not only are lying or, you know, letting, letting basic logic pass in the, in the name of something more, but there's a performance. Uh, some of the body language, the way a lot of the buzzwords and the buzz phrases are used in the degree of outrage at things that nobody would have thought of as a big deal about 10 minutes ago. There's a certain amount of acting. There's a certain amount of kabuki. There's a dance. And Shelby Steele, the conservative scholar who actually inspired me, I am just basically taking the torch from him. His idea is that white and black people are engaged in a certain kind of dance that we do. And that dance continues. He wrote his book in 1990 about a situation that had obtained since about 1966, and we're still doing it. We're striking poses. And that's nice, but that's different from going out and forging grassroots legislation, from actually talking to one another as honest people, including dealing with the discomfort of being honest. And it's, it's, it's a problem. I think most of us understand that there's a serious problem going on, but we're afraid. If you're white, you're afraid that if you question any of this, there's something wrong with you. If you're black, you're afraid that if you question any of this, you're disloyal in some way and that there must be something you're missing. That's how I felt until I was about 30. But no, no, there comes a point where common sense and logic are what they are. And with great reluctance, you have to understand that certain influential people, highly educated and often very well-meaning, they're the ones who have gone into a detour that we need to question. And that's hard when those people can be so mean, especially on social media, and you start to think maybe it's me who's wrong. You probably aren't. That's my message in woke racism. We have to start holding these people's feet to the fire and showing them that they need to listen. They don't know they need to listen, but they need to. And more to the point, they're not gonna listen. We have to start telling them they can't always have what they want. And that's what the book is about. Well, you say at one point in your book, I'm going to quote you, in sum, on the question of identity, elect ideology requires non-white people to found their sense of self on not being white and on not liking how white people may or may not feel about them. No one would wish this self-conception on their child when laid out explicitly in this way. The idea of it as progressive is false. It sits as a gloomy, illogical and pointless burden upon the souls of people whose spiritual energy ought to be directed elsewhere. Love that. Where should their energy be directed then? Towards helping the black community with the problems it really has. And that is the war on drugs, teaching reading based on sounding out words and championing vocational education. Those three things are what black people who need help could really benefit from. The idea that your identity 
is a matter of carefully curating a sense of self based on resisting what white people may or may not think of you. That's a very modern idea. It doesn't make sense to a lot of even black Caribbeans and Africans, immigrants here, and they are correct. Your identity should be based on what you like, what you like to do about the 99.9% .9 of you that is not about how white people may or may not feel about you. We have to stop fetishizing that particular interface because that's not what a person is. Maybe a black person needed to think of themselves that way a very long time ago, but for people to still insist that white feelings define what one's black identity is to that extent in 2021, it's a pose. It's not real and we need reality. Thank you.